All right, we are live. Good morning. Good morning, church family. Live on YouTube. It's weird to be saying good morning to a computer screen again. <laughs> Can't say it's preferable. Uh, but Lord willing, we will be back in the building next week. Um, hopefully everyone was able to get the notification, get the memo that this week we are 100% virtual. I'm broadcasting today from home, uh, keeping things simple here. Uh, we canceled services last week, <clears throat> last Sunday, um, completely, and then we we were planning on today being virtual and hopefully going back to normal, um, somewhat normal at the building next week. And this happened kind of due to a culmination of a few factors. Um, Ellie and I were already in somewhat of a quarantine with our newborn daughter. Um, so we weren't plan I wasn't planning on coming back anyway until this week. But then um, Mike and Laura ended up uh, catching COVID-19. And um, so they were on lockdown. And that's the the reason we had to cancel services last week. Um, and so we, we planned on doing services virtually regardless this week. Um, Ellie and I did have some contact with them. So we were then shut down or uh, locked down as well for 10 days. Uh, that just ended and praise God, we uh, tested negative and we feel fine. Uh, but Mike and Laura are still feeling pretty sick. Um, and Valeria, their daughter-in-law, also um, did end up getting it. She has a few symptoms and tested positive for it. Last I heard, she's doing okay. Um, they're not too severe. And as far as I know, Connor still isn't feeling any symptoms of it either. Um, but Mike and Laura got hit pretty hard by it. Um, they're both pretty sick. Mike is uh, at the hospital now. He was um, admitted to the hospital yesterday, last night, to the Lewis County General Hospital. Um, last I heard, he's doing better there. Um, he, they're, they're not too concerned for him, but he's, he is feeling pretty sick, and he's in the hospital, and Laura can't be with him um, because of the restrictions of, of everything. So definitely uh, keep them in prayer. Um, keep Connor and, and Valeria and uh, their daughter, Bella, in prayer. Uh, so we'll be definitely praying for them this morning. Um, and we will be wrapping up the book of Esther today, but it is obviously looking a little bit different than we um, expected. So things are going to be a little bit different today, different than we're used to, um, even just the fact that we're virtual. Uh, but then we're also... Um, this is the first time I've done a virtual, we did virtual services for quite a while during the pandemic, but throughout that whole time, um, it was both me and Mike. So at least I had someone to kind of dialogue with. And right now it's just me. So this is very different from even the virtual that we're used to, let alone actually meeting in person. Um, so it's going to be a little bit different than we're used to and a little bit different than we're expecting because originally Mike was planning on wrapping up the book of Esther uh, that he's been bringing us through the book of Esther. Um, so he was going to wrap that up himself today. And so I'm filling in for Mike um, because he's obviously just not physically able to. So I'm happy to fill in, but I'm sure I'm going to um, not cover some things that he was planning on covering and that he had in his head. 
but we're and it's going to be a little bit shorter to our time today than um, than usual. But we'll be reading through the the rest of the book of Esther together. Um, I'm going to have a little bit of commentary, but frankly, I'm not going to have a ton to add because, well, Scripture is sufficient, and it the the story really does um, speak for itself in in a lot of ways. I think. Uh, so. Just uh, one more time, a reminder that we are planning on being back to the building next week, and it will be the first Sunday of the month next week, so we are planning on doing uh, communion. So we'll be celebrating communion next week, and we'll be celebrating Easter uh, together as a family, Lord willing, next week. So looking forward to that, and hope you'll join us for that. Um, So let's, for now, um, have a word of prayer, and then we'll dive back into the book of Esther. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for the opportunity to uh, use technology to um, connect in a uh, somewhat reduced way uh, this morning, but still connect with the church family. Thank you for the rain outside. Thank you for spring and uh, just the the season of spring and the the, the hope that it brings. Um, at least for me, it's such an encouraging season of the year. Lord, we want to lift up today those in our family who are ill, um, particularly Mike and Laura. Uh, I pray for Mike as he's in the hospital that you would just um, be with his his health care providers, um, the nurses and doctors. Um, that you would give him rest, give his body the just the the rest and recuperation that it needs um, in order to fight this virus off. Uh, that the medication would do its work. Um, that you would give the the nurses wisdom, the doctors wisdom, and and caring for him. Uh, and Lord, for Laura as well, that you would heal her body and and allow her to continue to recover and and fight off this illness. Um, and just that you would comfort them as well during this this time where it's uh, just plain uncomfortable and stressful and on top of everything that um, they are now apart from each other and can't be a comfort to each other. So I just pray that your spirit would uh, comfort them and be a spirit of hope and healing for them. And we pray also for Connor and Valeria um, that you would continue to keep Connor healthy um, that Valeria would continue to have um, nothing more than mild uh, effects, and that they would uh, that Valeria would would heal quickly uh, from the virus. And Lord, for anyone else um, struggling as well with any illness, uh, we we pray. And Lord, I I just pray for your blessing over uh, our time in your Word this morning. Uh, that as we read the story of Esther, that your Spirit would speak to us, um, and that you would teach us through this uh, simple but exciting and uh, deep, complex story as well. Uh, In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so again, we're wrapping up with the book of Esther today. And last week, Mike covered chapters 5 and 6. And chapter 5 uh, just as a quick little recap, um, chapter five is where we had Esther approaching the king very boldly. Um, she prepared a banquet for the king and for Haman, and Haman is kind of our our bad guy in the story. Haman was feeling really good about himself up until 
this point. Um, and he was very happy about the whole banquet that Esther prepared, but then he remembered Mordecai, this Jew, um, Esther's cousin, older cousin. Um, and this Jew had refused to bow before Haman. So Haman came up with his whole plan to kill Mordecai. And then ultimately, because he was so mad, he wanted to wipe out all the Jews uh, completely. But it just so happened, <laughs> and or as, as Mike put it last week, things just kind of fell into place. Um, and the king ended up making Haman, in chapter 6, uh, get, Haman ended up giving Mordecai all kinds of honor and praise and had to parade him around the city on this horse. So instead of getting revenge and killing Mordecai, Haman had to honor him. And it's a truly just hilarious turn of events that we get in, in chapter 6. Uh, and it's it feels like this just really sweet karmic justice, <laughs> the way that things just so happened to take place, right? Uh, but on the other hand, you know, that that kind of almost could seem like the, the pinnacle or the culmination of the story with Mordecai being uh, lifted up in this way. But on the other hand, when the parade for Mordecai was over, things just kind of went back to the way they were. And Mike mentioned how that could kind of be awkward. After all that happens, Mordecai just goes back to work and it's like, okay, what was that? And in the meantime, Haman still wants to kill him. Uh, now, I'm sure even more than ever before, Mordecai or Haman wants to kill Mordecai. Plus, besides just that personal feud between Haman and Mordecai, Haman's whole evil plot to destroy all the Jews, where this decree was put out, where uh, all the Jews were going to be killed, destroyed, and annihilated on this designated day, that whole plan was still in motion. That decree had still been um, decreed. So Esther and Mordecai are still kind of faced with this problem, this, that, that tragedy that's looming on the horizon. So that's where chapter 7 of Esther picks up, and that's what we're going to be um, beginning in chapter 7 this morning. So if you want to read along, you can turn to chapter 7 with me. And again, we're just going to be reading pretty much straight through to the end of the book here, starting in chapter 7. And I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation, just because it's a very um, fluid uh, translation that works very well for these, these narrative uh, sections of Scripture. All right, so Esther chapter 7, starting in verse 1. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. On this second occasion, while they were drinking wine, <laughs> the king again said to Esther, Tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request? I will give it to you even if it's half the kingdom. And Mike uh, explained that phrase last week. Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. She's basically saying this is a big deal. They're trying to totally wipe us out. They could have just sold us as slaves. That, you know, as long as they let us live, I wouldn't have bothered you. But this is, this is bad. This is big. 
So what's the king's response? Uh, verse 5. Who would do such a thing? King Xerxes demanded. Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? Esther replied, this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. And I can just kind of picture her turning and, and pointing. This wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. <laughs> Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. Then the king jumped to his feet in a rage and went out into the palace garden. Haman, however, stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther, for he knew that the king intended to kill him. In despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining, just as the king was returning from the palace garden. And this was just horribly awkward timing. The king saw this and exclaimed, Will he even assault the queen right here in the, in the palace before my very eyes? As soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. So I can imagine, um, and this is just pure speculation on my part, but I can imagine that at some point here between verses 5 and uh, 8 here, it just might have crossed Haman's mind. You recall back in chapter 6, uh, the words of Zeresh, his wife, um, she, she told Haman, basically, Mordecai's a Jew, he, and you're, you're going to fail, you know, give up now. And I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what Zeresh said to Haman. And I just wonder if at some point here, Haman was going, man, I really should have listened to my wife. I really should have listened to Zeresh. She was right. Um, again, pure speculation, but, but she was right, clearly. Then verse 9, then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 70 feet tall, 75 feet tall in his own courtyard. He intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination. <laughs> then impale Haman on it, the king ordered. So they impaled Haman on the pole that he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. So Haman finally meets his fate uh, in a culmination of this is this is the culmination of the conflict between Haman and Mordecai. And it's a very poetic resolution to that conflict. There's just such a delicious irony in the fact that Haman was impaled on the exact same pole that he had prepared and planned to hang Mordecai from. It's just great. And even then that wasn't lost on Harbona, this eunuch who kind of, I, I got to love Harbona because this is the one who he's like, oh, by the way, he, Haman has this big sharpened pole that he planned to impale Mordecai. He was going to kill the guy who saved your life. Just FYI. <laughs> so I, I have a feeling Harbona wasn't, wasn't a big fan of Haman uh, in this moment. And so Again, it's the end of this personal conflict between Haman and Mordecai. But remember, we still have what's really, you know, the legacy of Haman's hate for the Jews. It's still lingering because even though Haman is dead, his whole scheme to wipe out the Jews, that was already set in motion. Uh, so their doomsday for the Jews' doomsday is literally on the calendar at this point. Uh, so we still have that 
conflict remaining in the story, which is why the story can't just end there. Uh, Haman's out of the picture, but we still have this problem to deal with, and that's where we pick up in, in chapter 8. On that same day, King Xerxes gave the property of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And if you recall, Mike mentioned this uh, towards the beginning, but we don't know exactly what Haman's role was, how rich and powerful he was, but it was clearly up there. He had a lot. His estate was expansive. Um, so all of that uh, went to Queen Esther, the Jewish queen of Persia. And then Mordecai was brought before the king, for Esther had told the king how they were related. So this whole secret of them being cousins and, and, and Esther being a Jew, this was all kind of out in the open now. There's no more sneaking around. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken back from Haman, uh, presumably before he impaled him on the pole, he took his ring back, uh, and he gave his ring to Mordecai. Esther appointed Mordecai to be in charge of Haman's property. Then Esther went again before the king, falling down at his feet and begging him with tears to stop the evil plot devised by Haman the Agagite against the Jews. Again, the king held out the gold scepter to Esther, so she rose and stood before him. So this is again Esther boldly approaching the king and again the king uh, reacting favorably to Esther. So what does she say? Verse 5, Esther said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor with him, and if he thinks it is right, and if I am pleasing to him. <laughs> it's quite the buildup there. Very, very wise, I think, on her part. Let there be a decree that reverses the orders of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, who ordered the Jews throughout all the king's provinces should be destroyed. For how can I endure to see my people and my family slaughtered and destroyed? Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, I have given Esther the property of Haman, and he has been impaled on a pole because he tried to destroy the Jews. Now go ahead and send a message to the Jews in the king's name, telling them whatever you want. Seal it with the king's signet ring. But remember that whatever has already been written in the king's name and sealed with his signet ring can never be revoked. So this is an interesting situation they're in. The king wants to help Esther and Mordecai, although, and I, I got to say this is very consistent with his character so far. Notice the king doesn't really make any decision himself. He, he doesn't actually try to solve the problem himself. Instead, he tells them, again, he's, he's giving them their, their, his signet ring or the power of his signet ring and tells them, you know what, you just send whatever message you want to send and seal it with my ring. But at the same time, they can't revoke what was already decreed previously. And remember, this detail actually came up earlier as well as in the book of Daniel. Um, and apparently this was a, a Persian uh, custom or a part of the Persian law was that once the king issued a decree, there was nothing that could um, uh, revoke that decree. So what are they going to say? How are they going to get around this? Uh, Esther 8 uh, verse 9. So on June 25th, 
the king's secretaries were summoned, and a decree was written exactly as Mordecai dictated. It was sent to the Jews and to the highest officers, the governors, and the nobles of all of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. It was a huge kingdom. Remember the map that Mike showed us a couple weeks ago? Maybe it was last week. I don't know. The decree was written in the scripts and languages of all the peoples of the empire, including that of the Jews. So this was sent to, to everyone in, in um, every language so that everyone knew what this decree said. The decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Mordecai sent the dispatches by swift messengers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king's service. They're like pulling out all the stops. They're getting the, the special fast horses to make sure this gets out as fast as possible to everyone possible. Verse 11, the king's decree gave the Jews in every city authority to unite to defend their lives. This is what the decree is actually saying. They were allowed to kill, slaughter, and annihilate anyone of any nationality or province who might attack them or their children and wives and to take the property of their enemies. The day chosen for this event throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes was March 7th of the next year. So this decree is giving the Jews the right to defend themselves and basically go to war with their enemies without any retaliation from the king's army. Whereas before they might have expected, you know, their enemies might have expected um, a little bit more support from the king based on the previous decree. Where now the king is saying, you know what, the Jews can totally defend themselves and wipe you out if you try to attack them. Uh, so it's on you, basically, if you want to attack the Jews. It's, you know, you're putting your own life on the line. And they were also allowed to notice, um, it includes <clears throat> that they were allowed to take the property of their enemies. All right, so verse 13, a copy of this decree was to be issued as law in every province and proclaimed to all peoples so that the Jews would be ready to take revenge on their enemies on the appointed day. So urged on by the king's command, the messengers rode out swiftly on fast horses bred for the king's service. The same decree was also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa. Then Mordecai left the king's presence, wearing the royal robe of blue and white, the great crown of gold and an outer cloak of fine linen and purple. And the people of Susa celebrated the new decree. The Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honored everywhere. In every province and city, wherever the king's decree arrived, the Jews rejoiced and had a great celebration and declared a public festival and holiday. And many of the people of the land became Jews themselves, for they feared what the Jews might do to them. All right. Beginning of chapter 9. So, on March 7th, the two decrees of the king were put into effect. So, you have both decrees. On that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But quite the opposite happened. It was the Jews who overpowered their enemies. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the king's provinces to attack anyone who tried to harm them. But no one could make a stand against them, for everyone was afraid of them. 
and all the nobles of the provinces, the highest officers, the governors, and the royal officials helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai. For Mordecai had been promoted in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces as he became more and more powerful. So the Jews went ahead on the appointed day and struck down their enemies with the sword. They killed and annihilated their enemies and did as they pleased with those who hated them. In the fortress of Susa itself, the Jews killed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphan, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmashta, Arasai, Aradai, and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not take any plunder. That very day, when the king was informed of the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa, he called for Queen Esther. He said, the Jews have killed 500 men in the fortress of Susa alone, as well as Haman's ten sons. If they've done that here, what has happened in the rest of the provinces? But now what more do you want? It will be granted to you. Tell me, and I will do it. Esther responded, if it please the king. Give the Jews in Susa permission to do again tomorrow as they have done today, and let the bodies of Haman's ten sons be impaled on a pole. So the king agreed, and the decree was announced in Susa, and they impaled the bodies of Haman's ten sons. Then the Jews at Susa gathered together on March 8th and killed 300 more men, and again they took no plunder. Meanwhile, the other Jews throughout the king's provinces had gathered together to defend their lives. They gained relief from all their enemies, killing 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not take any plunder. And this was done throughout the provinces on March 7th, and on March 8th, they rested, celebrating their victory with a day of feasting and gladness. The Jews at Susa killed their enemies on March 7th and again on March 8th, and then rested on March 9th, making that their day of feasting and gladness. This is kind of just a little parenthetical clarifying um, that in Susa they had two days, whereas everywhere else it was just one. So to this day, rural Jews living in remote villages celebrate an annual festival and holiday on the appointed day in late winter when they rejoice and send gifts of food to each other. And that, by the way, verse 19, where it says, to this day, obviously this was written a long time ago, but to this day actually does still apply today. Um, this is still a holiday that is celebrated called Purim. And that that's actually comes up in a few more verses here. Um, let's see, where are we? Verse 20, Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to the Jews near and far throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes calling on them to celebrate an annual festival on these two days. He told them to celebrate these days with feasting and gladness and by giving gifts of food to each other and presents to the poor. This would commemorate a time when the Jews gained relief from their enemies, when their sorrow was turned into gladness and their mourning into joy. So the Jews accepted Mordecai's proposal and adopted this annual custom. Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And this, so verses 24 and um, 25 are kind of the summary of the entire story of Esther in two verses. 
Haman, son of Hamadath of the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted to crush and destroy them on the date determined by casting lots. The lots were called Purim. But when Esther came before the king, he issued a decree causing Haman's evil plot to backfire, and Haman and his sons were impaled on a sharpened pole. That is why this celebration is called Purim, because it is the ancient word for casting lots. <laughs> and casting lots is an ancient custom, which is similar to uh, rolling dice <clears throat> in modern days. So because of Mordecai's letter and because of what they had experienced, the Jews throughout the realm agreed to inaugurate this tradition and pass it on to their descendants and to all who became Jews. They declared they would never fail to celebrate these two prescribed days at the appointed time each year. Quick little side note here. It's kind of interesting that this is the first time that they've actually created a holiday and a feast. Um, these prescribed days where they have this whole festival. Um, this wasn't commanded by God, whereas all of their other festivals and, and feasts are part of the Torah. Um, the everything that was given to them in the law uh, through Moses. And this, this time they're actually establishing their own festival uh, of their own accord. It's kind of interesting. These days would be remembered and kept from generation to generation and celebrated by every family throughout the provinces and cities of the empire. The festival of Purim would never cease to be celebrated among the Jews, nor would the memory of what happened ever die out among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, along with Mordecai, the Jew, wrote another letter, putting the, the queen's full authority behind Mordecai's letter to establish the festival of Purim. Letters wishing peace and security were sent to the Jews throughout the 127 provinces of the empire of Xerxes. These letters established the festival of Purim, an annual celebration of these days at the appointed time decreed by both Mordecai, the Jew, and Queen Esther. The people decided to observe this festival just as they had decided for themselves and their descendants to establish the times of fasting and mourning. So the command of Esther confirmed the practices of Purim, and it was all written down in the records. And we get just this tiny little uh, <laughs> addendum in, in chapter 10. King Xerxes imposed a tribute throughout his empire, even to the distant coastlands. His great achievements and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are recorded in the book of the history of the kings of Media and Persia. Mordecai the Jew became the prime minister, with authority next to that of King Xerxes himself, who... He was very great among the Jews who held him in high esteem because he continued to work for the good of his people and to speak up for the welfare of all their descendants. And that's the book of Esther. It ends, it's, it's a very nice, tidy, positive, happy ending. Uh, it's a very um, popular story, I think, for that reason. Uh, there's, there's a lot of great conflict, but everything works out really well in the end. Uh, and it's it's interesting though that it's in the Bible, and it's a it's a book where God is never mentioned. Um, the book of Esther, <laughs> uh, whereas he God is all throughout the rest of the Bible, he's never mentioned in the book of of Esther. 
And his involvement in the story is never explicitly described. But we have a story, nonetheless, that, that just provides this brilliant illustration of how God truly is, is never absent. Uh, whether or not we acknowledge him or whether or not he makes his present obvious, uh, God was never absent during the exile and even during the exile where you might expect the Jews to kind of feel like he was absent. But his hand was at work even through, you know, coincidences and happen chances and, and things just kind of falling into place. We, we know through the context of viewing Esther in the whole tapestry and mosaic of the Bible that, that God was clearly at work here, using two Jews in the midst of exile to save um, the whole nation uh, or the whole people group. At that point, they weren't even a nation, the whole people group uh, from extinction. Um, and this, this truth of God, you know, God is never absent. That's, that's still true in our lives today. Um, and we can certainly take comfort and hope in the knowledge that you know, even in the most trying of circumstances, God will never abandon us and he will never abandon his promises. Uh, and I think that's probably the, the most important and, and most powerful message to take away from Esther. Uh, and next week, Lord willing, we will get to celebrate together um, in in that vein of God fulfilling His promises. You know, the the most the ultimate promise of the new the Old Testament is the promise of the Messiah, which is fulfilled in the New Testament, fulfilled in Christ, culminating in His resurrection. Uh, so we'll be going from Esther uh, this week to Easter next week. So not to not to be confused with each other. Uh, so I do. I hope you'll join us for that. Uh, let's let's end in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, I just thank you again for the gift of your Word, the gift of Scripture. Thank you for uh, the story of Esther and how exciting it is, how dynamic it is, uh, and ultimately how it it creatively shows you and reveals you and your sovereignty, um, even though you're never mentioned in it, we, we can see you there in the story. So I just, I pray that uh, our time in Esther um, will have been beneficial, uh, that the, the story will impact our lives in the way that you uh, have meant it to impact our lives, that those of us who just so happened to study this story uh, over these last few weeks um, will just so happen to uh, find it impactful in our lives. And Lord, I do just want to bring up once again um, those who are sick, uh, that you would just bring healing uh, to their to their bodies, Lord, and that uh, those of us who are um, healthy uh, and can serve. Uh, I just pray that you would uh, show us the ways in which we can um, serve each other within the body and support each other and love each other. And Lord, I do just pray that you would allow us to come back um, in person, uh, that you would allow us to meet together at the building next week. Um, as in all things, Lord, your will, not ours. Uh, Lord, we we love you and I pray for your your blessing over us uh, the rest of this day and in the coming week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for 
for joining us online this morning. Uh, again, keep Mike and Laura, Connor and Valeria in prayer. Keep each other in prayer. I encourage you to spend some time, if you're alone, in meditation and prayer today uh, or with your families. Um, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to reach out to me um, via email, our website, phone number. Um, that's all we have for today. Have a great week.